This program is made possible by grants from Humanities Kansas and the Sunflower Foundation in partnership with the Gary County Historical Society. This is Pandemic on the Prairie, a podcast about the 1918 influenza pandemic in Kansas and what local stories tell us about the American experience more broadly. I'm your host, Kara Heights. Join me as we learn about this important moment in history and perhaps through the past, come to better understand the present. Welcome to our second mini-episode of Pandemic on the Prairie. So putting together this podcast means a lot of great stories end up on the cutting room floor. These mini-episodes are a place to go a little deeper into a topic that didn't quite fit into the main episode, but is still an important story to be told. In the last episode, we learned about an early outbreak of the flu pandemic in the spring of 1918 at the Haskell Institute, a boarding school for Native Americans in Kansas. And we also heard about how the school suffered during the deadly fall wave of the flu. We also discovered how students and parents attempted to push against discriminatory policies and exert their autonomy within an often paternalistic system. While we did cover a brief history of the Haskell Institute, we didn't explore this in much detail. So, in this mini-episode, we're filling in the backstory and discussing the history of the Haskell Institute, now known as Haskell Indian Nations University, from its founding in the late 1800s into the present day. And to help us learn about this history, we'll talk again with Eric Anderson, professor and chair of the Indigenous and American Indian Studies program at Haskell Indian Nations University and a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Professor Anderson, can you tell us about the history of Indian boarding schools in the United States and Haskell's place in that history? I think the place to start would be that ever since Europeans arrived and encountered indigenous peoples in the Americas, but specifically North America, they set out to change them. Along with the so-called explorers came priests and missionaries and others who wanted to change Indians uh, on a spiritual level. And along with that came a push to educate them. And I'm putting quotation marks around that word educate. I would say re-educate is probably a, a more accurate term. So it wasn't very long before the movement to missionize and proselytize, which included church meetings and praying towns and interpreting the Bible into native languages, um, came schools. And for a long while, that was the province of religious folks. Um, and those types of re-education kind of got rolled into what began to happen in earnest after the Civil War. After the Civil War, when fighting against Indians had kind of come to a, a little bit of a pause, because for the new United States and its expansionist manifest destiny kind of mission, Indians were seen as obstacles to be removed or impediments to be eliminated. But the nation being weary from all of the slaughter and bloodshed of the Civil War, even though it did resume expansion and Indian fighting, 
um, there's really a kind of a new push on the part of people that I guess we'll call reformers, many of them from religious backgrounds, many of them from the abolitionist period, um, who now turned to reform of Indian policy. And they had the ear of a number of folks in the government, and they were able to shape policy. So the earlier religious model of training for Indians uh, now becomes part and parcel of a government program to set up schools for American Indians. And, and that had kind of three tiers to it. Um, it had day schools on the reservations. It had reservation boarding schools where students stayed you know, at the facilities um, during the week. And then what really became the, again, quotation marks here, elite system of schools that was created beginning in the 1880s. And these are the off-reservation or non-reservation boarding schools. Um, and the reason they were seen as elite was for a couple of reasons. For one, they did offer a more advanced level of education, perhaps, but they're also seen as elite in the sense that uh, they would remove those Indian children, and it was primarily young people, ranging in age from about really toddlers to young adults, uh, would remove them from what were seen as the harmful influences of their home environments on the reservations. So the idea was to totally divorce Native peoples from their cultures. And with that in mind, who better to start with than the young? This shift towards full-time boarding schools for Native American children is really the brainchild of a man named Richard Henry Pratt. Pratt was a general in the U.S. Army fighting for the Union in the Civil War and in the Indian Wars of the 1860s and 1870s. Contrary to common views among whites at the time, Carlyle did not see Native Americans as vermin or subhuman, but rather as human beings, with the same abilities as everyone else who could be similarly educated. Pratt was a leading member of what was known as the Friends of the Indian Movement in the late 1800s, which believed that Indians could be, quote, civilized and made into, quote, productive members of American society. Pratt is known for the phrase, kill the Indian, save the man. Pratt and the Friends of the Indian Movement were able to convince the U.S. government to put their ideas into action by removing some Indian children from reservations and placing them at boarding schools far away from their homes. In 1879, Pratt founded the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, the first Native American boarding school in the United States. Other schools using the Carlisle model soon followed, including the Haskell Institute, founded in 1884. I asked Professor Anderson to describe what Haskell was like in these early days after its founding. Um, it, it's, you know, in Kansas, kind of the middle of the, the country, well, as we think of it today. And so it's well-situated, close to Indian Territory, Oklahoma, as well as um, the Northern Plains. And it opens, you know, rather modestly with 22 students. Some of these students came to help with the actual building of the school. And most of those students were Pawnees and Cheyennes, who were traditional enemies. And so you have an interesting situation there. But yeah, the, the, the idea is to strip away culture. So um, they removed them from the familiar environment of home. And now the focus will be, again, on Christianity, English, and manual labor. Those are the three major 
driving forces that are going to be used as a means for cleaving away these young people from their cultures. And of course, the banning of speaking traditional languages, of um, practicing traditional uh, religious beliefs uh, or other cultural customs. So incoming students are going to receive haircuts. They're going to have their um, clothing that mirrors the, the, the white standards of the day, kind of the Victorian standards. They're going to oftentimes receive a new name, a less uh, Indian-sounding name, uh, and they're going to be grouped according to their level of exposure to Western culture. Um, but it's all centered around that idea of breaking apart the tribal way of thinking. The Haskell Institute grew quite rapidly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. By the beginning of the influenza pandemic in 1918, Haskell was the largest of the 25 off-reservation federal boarding schools in the country, with over 1,000 students. Professor Anderson uses the sociology term total institution to describe Haskell at this point. It's kind of a bubble with its own commissary, mess hall, post office, and dormitories. Everyone lives on campus, and students cannot leave campus without permission of school officials. At the time of the flu pandemic, Haskell is still very much operating under an assimilationist model of educating Native American students. This really does not start to change until the 1930s, with what is referred to as the Indian New Deal, a part of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's larger set of New Deal programs during the Great Depression. I asked Professor Anderson if there is any kind of opening up to Native American cultures and traditions at Haskell during the period around the flu pandemic. Are students a little bit freer in 1918 or 1920 than they were in the late 1800s at the school? It's freer, I would say, with some hesitation than it was in the 1880s. And you have a lot more students representing a lot more tribal nations. Um, they're learning from each other. Um, they're finding commonalities, as well as recognizing the distinctions of their backgrounds. But I, I think it was really probably a very vibrant place at that time. If you look at some of the memoirs that are out there from around that period, you often find um, a lot of uh, fond memories. People are meeting and becoming close, um, dating, and often marrying uh, after they leave school, uh, which um, kind of um, brings this, this cross-cultural aspect to the legacy of Haskell. Um, it's still kind of, a, you know, still very stifling culturally, um, but even that's beginning to change. So, um, again, by the 1910s, um, you, you certainly have quite a few, you know, Indian staff members, um, even some instructors uh, on a limited level. So there's, there's some even recognition of Indian cultures uh, that maybe there could be something valuable, in, which is very different than how Haskell started. They're not teaching Native American studies, certainly, but they're beginning to allow students to maybe express themselves culturally through arts, perhaps through uh, the student newspaper, the Indian leader. If you look at the newspaper from that time, you're seeing um, Indian oral tradition stories from different cultures uh, being printed. Of course, it's kind of removed from the oral tradition 
And it's very much being done in a way that is still reflective of the dominant culture's point of view. Uh, you know, the first powwow at Haskell was actually very early, um, but it wasn't a powwow like we would think of. It was more like a, a, a literary society, you know, readings of, you know, Western poetry and things like that. But even the use of the term powwow does show us that Indian students have a real hand in changing the dynamic at Haskell. And I think that's really critically important when we think about the early history of the school, is that the students are not entirely powerless. They're not just victims who are being acted upon. I mean, they're agents of their own destiny to a certain extent. I think that's important to recognize that the students and their their families and their support networks do have a hand in creating what I would call a slow evolution of the school. So by 1918, it looks very different than it did in 1884 in some ways, but it's still operating under that assumption that Indian cultures are inferior and that these students Hearts and minds should be shaped by the currents and the standards of dominant Western culture and thinking. So to end things on a more positive note, I asked Professor Anderson to tell us about the history of Haskell after the influenza pandemic and what Haskell Indian Nations University is as an institution today. I am so glad that you brought that up because I would have gotten off of this interview and said, you know, I really should have finished or at least addressed um, something that I brought up earlier. This is this uh, evolution of the school and this hand that Indian students and families and communities have had in that. I think that when you look at the reasons that students came to school, whether it was in the earliest days or in the, the period of World War One or even today, you know, you're going to find as many different possible answers as perhaps communities. But one has been seeking better opportunities. And I think that's a reason that anyone would come to, to school. Seeking the opportunity and trying to address the needs of Indian country. And I think that's been a consistent theme in Haskell's history. And so it is this slow evolution. When we think about the period that you're interested in, um, it isn't much past that. You know, the, the transition is beginning to happen by the late 1910s and, and maybe partially as a, as a function of the Citizenship Act in the 1920s, Haskell's transitioning into really a high school. Still not college, um, but something in many ways, most ways, maybe always, more positive than what it had been before. But then you have you know, some of the, the agitation of civil rights that begins happening perhaps in Indian country in the 40s and the 50s, certainly by the 60s and 70s in a big way, you know, reflecting civil rights agitation more generally. Um, so by 1970, you know, to address those needs of Indian country, we got to have a college. We've got to be educating Native peoples about their own histories. It's been taken from us for so long. Um, so with the, the founding of the, the Native American Studies movement, we need to have positive role models. We need to look at the, the agency, the sovereignty, um, the traditions of our own communities that the schools tried to beat out of us, tried to, to try to take from us. You know, and then in the 90s, transitioning to a university. So we have today really the polar opposite of what Haskell was in its inception. Not a place that is set up to quash or divorce 
from our cultures, our traditions, our heritage, but instead a place that, that celebrates those, that looks at the richness of uh, all of these different tribal nations across the United States. Because Haskell is, as my colleague Dan Wildcat says, the de facto National American Indian University. Because at any given time, we might have 130, 140, maybe 150 different tribal nations represented. And in a school that you know has a population of you know perhaps 800 students, I mean that's incredibly diverse. It's incredibly, strikingly well represented from all of these different histories, peoples, cultures, and traditions, and ways of life. So it is for me a real privilege to teach there and to, to learn, and we always learn from our students, of course, but you know, to learn from so many different, you know, vibrant backgrounds and what they bring to our university. It's, it's pretty amazing. It is most certainly pretty amazing how Haskell has transformed from an institution centered on the bigoted objective of kill the Indian, save the person, to an institution of higher education that puts Native American cultures and heritage at its very center. There are few universities in this country that can claim that much diversity in its student body. So when our current pandemic is over, I highly encourage you to go visit Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. Stop by the Cultural Center and Museum. Take the walking tour. Go see the cemetery on campus and reflect on the fraught history of how the U.S. government has treated Native Americans. But also look to the present day and see how vibrant and active the school and student body are now, which is representative of the larger richness, diversity, and resilience of Native American communities today across this country. Thanks for listening to this mini-episode of Pandemic on the Prairie. You can listen to our other episodes, as well as get additional information about Haskell Indian Nations University and other subjects we cover at our website, www.1918flukansas.com. That's www.1918flukas.com. See you next time. It was in 1919. Yes, men and women was that When that stuff Which the doctors Call the flu People died Everywhere Death went creeping Through the air And the groans Of the rich Sure was sad 